Dear Lord, thank you for this day. Thank you for this time to gather together, to be encouraged, to worship you, and to proclaim your glory, to hear from your word, and to learn, and to be equipped. We pray that you would bless this sermon, and that you would equip us, and that you would prepare us for what you have for us, and that we would uh, be ready for the work you are sending us out to. And we thank you for your grace, and amen. So today we are still continuing our series called the GCF Vision. Uh, the vision or the GCF vision is a term that we use a lot, but we haven't had a thorough teaching on in a while, at least not since Greg was teaching RCF. And uh, the GCF vision is that there are certain aspects of Christianity that God wants the church to rediscover and restore. And in this series, we're focusing on five of them. The first one, having a biblically complete understanding of, experience of, and presentation of the gospel. Number two, being grace-based instead of performance-based. Number three, being reformed and charismatic. Number four, understanding the role, relevance, and responsibilities of the church. And number five, having a victorious eschatology. Um, So that is kind of the goal of this series is to help us become familiar with all the five of those things and what exactly the church needs to rediscover and restore in those areas. So we're continuing a subsection of this series. We're on the part being reformed and charismatic, and uh, we're looking at the strengths of charismatic churches. Um, So there's five qualities that I would kind of associate with what I would describe as a charismatic church. Uh, The first one, holding to continuationism rather than cessationism, Uh, also receiving baptism in the Holy Spirit, Uh, pursuing and emphasizing the gifts of the Spirit, Uh, participating in spiritual warfare and deliverance, which we'll be talking about today, and having a culture of worship, prayer, and expectation. So the topic of deliverance and spiritual warfare really deserves its own series, but for the sake of this series, uh, we're only going to do an overview. And maybe sometime I'll do a series uh, just on deliverance and spiritual warfare, if I ever get around to it. So let's start off talking about deliverance. What is deliverance? Uh, Deliverance is when someone is set free from demonic bondage or oppression, which is often or usually caused by indwelling demons. And this was a major part of Jesus' ministry. It's all throughout the Gospels. Jesus is constantly setting people free from demonic bondage. And it's also something all Christians are supposed to take part in. Let's look at Mark 16, verses 17 through 18. And these signs will accompany those who believe. In my name, they will cast out demons. They will speak in new tongues. They will pick up serpents with their hands. If they drink any deadly poison, it will not hurt them. They will lay hands on the sick and they will recover. So deliverance is a ministry that is given to the church. It's given to all Christians. Any believer has the authority of Jesus for casting out demons. So before we uh, really understand deliverance or start to, we need to understand what it means to be demonized. So when a person is indwelt by a demon, that's what I'm going to call being demonized. There's a word in the Greek, uh, hopefully I pronounce it correctly, daimonzon. Let's look at the Greek definition. So this often gets translated possessed, and honestly, that's a bad translation. 
there isn't really good grounds to translate it as possessed. Um, you can see at various points the KJV does translate it as possessed, but it really means to be under the power of a demon. Nowhere does the word give the sense of being owned by a demon. It's under the power of or the influence of a demon. So when it says in the Bible, when it gets translated, so-and-so was possessed by a demon, the Greek, I think it'd be better to translate it, so-and-so was demonized. They were indwelt by a demon. They were under the power of a demon. But... Possessed is not really a good translation. So being demonized means a person has one or more demons indwelling them who are oppressing them in one or more ways. A demonic oppression from indwelling demons might play out in one or more of multiple ways, some more subtle, others less subtle. Let's look at a few ways demons oppress people. Uh, one of them, the demons amplify a person's struggle against sinful or foolish behavior. One example I want to look at uh, is in 2 Chronicles 18, verses 19 through 21. And the Lord said, Who will entice Ahab, king of Israel, that he might go up and fall at Ramoth-Gilead? And one said one thing, and another said another. Then a spirit came forward and stood before the Lord, saying, I will entice him. And the Lord said to him, By what means? And he said, I will go out and be a lying spirit in the mouth of all his prophets. And he said, you are to entice him and you shall exceed. Go out and do so. We see here that God, even by his sovereignty, uses the evil that demons do for his good, because God works all things together for good and for his purpose. But this demon, this lying spirit, was influencing uh, the prophets who were going to speak to Ahab to lie to him. Let's also look at Acts 16, verse 16. As we were going to the place of prayer, we met a slave girl who had a spirit of divination and brought her owners much gain by fortune-telling. So in case you didn't know, divination is a sin. <laughs> Telling the future, especially by demonic means, is a sin. And this spirit of divination was influencing her for divination. So evil spirits, demons, amplify a person's struggle against sinful or foolish behavior. Another thing demons do to oppress people is they can amplify a person's emotional or mental struggles. One of the best examples of that in the scripture is uh, the case of Saul. Let's look at 1 Samuel 16 verse 14. Now the spirit of the Lord departed from Saul, and a harmful spirit from the Lord tormented him. So what does it mean, tormented? I don't think it tormented him physically. I don't think it tied him to a chair and, you know, tortured him with sharp objects. I think this was an emotional or mental torment, which, you know, we see uh, in the next few chapters. Let's look at 1 Samuel 18, uh, 10 through 11. The next day, a harmful spirit from God rushed upon Saul, and he raved within his house while David was playing the lyre, and as, as he did day by day. Saul had his spear in his hand, 
And Saul hurled the spear, for he thought, I will pin David to the wall. But David evaded him twice. And then we see in the next chapter, uh, basically the same thing happens again. The harmful spirit rushes on Saul, and you know, Saul already has some anger issues. Is this, we can kind of tell. But then when the, when the evil spirit rushes upon Saul, his anger issues become much worse. And he is under emotional turmoil. So demons also amplify a person's emotional or mental struggles. Demons also may at times cause a person to develop a physical illness. Let's look at Matthew 9, verses 32 and 33. As they were going away, behold, a demon-oppressed man who was mute was brought to him. And when the demon had been cast out, the mute man spoke. And the crowds marveled, saying, never was anything like this seen in Israel. Let's also look at chapter 12, verse 22. Then a demon-oppressed man who was blind and mute was brought to him, and he healed him so that the man spoke and saw. And lastly, let's look at uh, Luke 13, verses 10 through 13. Now he was teaching in one of the synagogues on the Sabbath. And behold, there was a woman who had a disabling spirit for 18 years. She was bent over and could not fully straighten herself. When Jesus saw her, he called her over and said, Woman, you are freed from your disability. And he laid his hands on her, and immediately she was made straight and she glorified God. It doesn't say that this was just some sickness. It said she had a disabling spirit. This illness she had was caused by a demon. A demon that was indwelling her. She had a disabling spirit. So demons can at times cause physical illness. Uh, they can also cause intrusive thoughts and whatnot because you know their goal is to cause temptations. And sometimes demons will even manifest in a person's body. By manifest, I mean speaking through them or acting through them. Uh, you know, this happened several times in Jesus' ministry. Especially demons would speak out about Jesus. Let's look at Luke 4, verse 41. And demons also came out of many, crying, You are the Son of God. But he rebuked them and would not allow them to speak because they knew that he was the Christ. Spirits are spirits, and you can't hear them audibly unless they're speaking through a person. They were manifesting through the persons they were indwelling. They were speaking physically through the people they were indwelling, which they do not necessarily always do, or not at all times. So those are some ways in which demons oppress people. Uh, I do want to point out some misunderstandings about demonization. Again, demonization does not mean possessed. Nowhere in the Greek does it say a person was possessed by a demon. Having a demon does not mean being possessed by a demon. It does not mean owned by a demon. The Lord owns the cattle on a thousand hills. I also want to point out, being demonized does not mean fully controlled by. I think a lot of people use the term possessed because they have some conceptual expectation of what a person indwelt by demons is going to experience, and they expect them to be fully controlled by demons. 
And you know, there are some cases in the scripture where a person seemed to be so under uh, the influence of demons that it looked as if they were completely controlled by them, like the boy who would throw himself into the fire and um, the one with the legion. But that wasn't always the case. Uh, I would compare being under the power of a demon to being under the power of drugs or alcohol. A person can be more or less under the influence of drugs or alcohol at any given time based on how much they use them. And the drugs or alcohol don't fully control that person. They might become so under the influence of drugs or alcohol that it appears that they are, but they don't fully control that person, even though they do have a real definitive influence over them. The last thing I want to point out about demonization is it's not always super obvious. A lot of times, uh, Christians don't even see demonization going on because they expect it to be super obvious. But I want to point out a few examples. Let's look at Mark verses one, Mark one twenty one through twenty four. And they went to, into Capernaum, and immediately on the Sabbath he entered the synagogue and was teaching. And they were astonished at his teaching, for he taught them as one who had authority, and not as the scribes. And immediately there was in their synagogue a man with an unclean spirit. And he cried out, What have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know that you are the Holy One of God. So one question I would encourage you to ask, how did this guy get in the synagogue? Did they just let him in? Was, was he just blatantly, obviously controlled by demons and, um, and just running around screaming and somehow he made it to the synagogue and no one stopped him? I would consider an alternative. He was a regular synagogue attender and one day... Um, you know, he heard Jesus teaching and his demons were bothered by it and spoke out at that moment. He was already in the synagogue. But again, there's other examples that show that demonic indwelling or demonization isn't always obvious. There's the woman who we just read about with the disabling spirit. If she went to church nowadays, they'd tell her, you should see a doctor. They'd think, this can't be a demonic uh, thing. This can't be caused by demons. It's not super obvious. She's not insane. This can't be demonization. Demonization is always blatantly obvious, right? Demonization is not always super obvious. It can be very subtle. We'll talk about that more in a bit. So anyways, I hope that gives a better understanding of what it means to be demonized. And I really want us to remember that it's not always super obvious. It's not usually what Hollywood depicts it as. We need to get our, our thoughts about what demons do from the Bible and not from Hollywood. And we need to take into account the whole Bible, not just a few cases that Hollywood likes to point out. 
So anyways, the next part of this sermon, let's get to an important question. Can Christians be indwelt by demons? This is an important question. So the first thing I want to point out, the Bible does not say or even imply anywhere that a Christian cannot have a demon. And it's a rather risky assumption to make. A lot of Christians take the assumption that a Christian can't have a demon because they're a Christian. But that's not safe to assume. You have to evaluate the risk of your beliefs. You know, if, if they're right, you know, no harm. But what if you're wrong? What if you assume that a Christian can't have a demon, and then because of that you would never be aware of it, and you would never use the authority you have to cast one out, because you're just blindly following the assumption that a Christian can't have a demon. That's a risky assumption to make. If you see it in the Bible, good and well. But don't just assume it. That's a dangerous assumption. That's risky. The Bible does not anywhere say or imply that a Christian cannot have a demon. And it might not be explicit, but I think there is implication that Christians can have demons or that believers can have demons, even though it might not be explicit or obvious. I want to look at a case. So we just read Luke 13, 10 through 13, uh, the woman with the disabling spirit, but let's read on from 13 to 16. You know, he said this, he laid hands on her, and immediately she was made straight, and she glorified God. But the ruler of the synagogue, indignant because Jesus had healed on the Sabbath, said to the people, there are six days in which work ought to be done. Come on one of those days and be healed, and not on the Sabbath day. Then the Lord answered him, you hypocrites, does not each of you on the Sabbath untie his ox or his donkey from the manger and lead it away to water it? And ought not this woman, a daughter of Abraham, whom Satan bound for 18 years, be loosed from this bond on a Sabbath day? Now I want to focus on this word, daughter of Abraham. Jesus calls her a daughter of Abraham. And he's speaking to the Pharisees. But let's contrast that with what he calls the Pharisees. Let's look at John 8.44. You are of your father the devil. And your will is your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks of his own character, for he is a liar and the father of lies. The Pharisees were Israelites. The Pharisees weren't Gentiles. Jesus didn't call them sons of Abraham. He called them sons of the devil. Let's look at Galatians 3, verses 6 and 7. Just as Abraham believed God and was counted to him as righteousness, know then that it is those of faith who are sons of Abraham. So I think it's really worth considering that when Jesus uh, heals her, when he delivers her from the demon who was disabling her and calls her afterward daughter of Abraham, it's really worth considering that he's saying this woman is a believer. So that might not be explicitly clear, but that's really worth considering. Another thing I would consider on whether or not Christians can be indwelt by demons is that the Bible says Christians are to cast out demons. But if, if Christians can't have demons, 
then that kind of implies that if a person becomes a Christian and has demons, they automatically lose all of their demons as soon as they come to Christ. Makes sense. It would kind of be necessary. But if a person loses all their demons when they come to Christ, why waste time casting out demons? Why not put all time and effort into, you know, sharing the gospel? I also want to deal with uh, a few objections, common objections, that people use to say, well, this is why a Christian can't have a demon. And, you know, these aren't found in the scripture. But the first one is that the Holy Spirit would never share space with a demon. And therefore, you can't be indwelt by a demon if you're indwelt by the Holy Spirit. But I would like to point out a logical error in that. The Holy Spirit is omnipresent. The Holy Spirit is even present in hell. But that doesn't keep demons from indwelling hell. So that doesn't seem like a real good reason to believe that a demon couldn't, a Christian couldn't have a demon. Uh, you know, some people say there isn't room for other spirits if the Holy Spirit is indwelling a person. But I don't think that fits with Scripture too well. Let's look at Mark 5, verses 7 through 9. And crying out with a loud voice, he said, What have you to do with me, Jesus, Son of Most High God? I adjure you by God, do not torment me. For he was saying to him, Come out of that man, you unclean spirit. And Jesus asked him, What is your name? And he replied, My name is Legion, for we are many. A legion, if you Google the definition, is a major unit of the Roman army consisting of 3,000 to 6,000 infantry troops and 100 to 200 cavalry troops. That's a lot. So this person had room for thousands of demons. I think spiritual space needs to be thought of differently than physical space. This is just one of several cases in the Bible where a person has multiple demons. So there seems to be room for multiple spirits within a human spirit. Not only that, but a person can be more or less filled with the spirit. Some days you're more filled with the spirit, some days you're not so filled with the spirit. But if the Holy Spirit completely fills a person, as this objection implies, how is it that a person can be more filled or less filled with the spirit? And then I would say, in a real sense, the biggest reason people don't believe that demons can indwell Christians is kind of the cessationist argument, or that's how I word it. It's the idea that we don't see demons, therefore they must not be there. I think that's really the major underlying reason most Christians in America don't believe that, you know, demons can indwell Christians. But if a person doesn't see demons in Christians, but then again, they don't really see demons anywhere, you kind of have to ask, where did they all go? So if you don't see demons... <laughs> if you don't see demons indwelling Christians, good and well, but if you don't see demons indwelling non-Christians, maybe you're just not seeing it. Maybe it's not that it's not there. Maybe the reason... A person doesn't see demons in Christians is the same reason they don't see them in non-Christians. They don't know what to expect. 
But again, I want to point out, demonization is not always obvious as Hollywood would lead us to believe. You know, two of the cases we just looked at. The lying spirits, the lying spirit and Ahab's prophets, that wasn't outwardly obvious. If it was, Ahab wouldn't have believed them. He didn't think, oh wow, they're insane, they're shaking up and down, they're screaming, they're you know, jumping off the walls. No, these were normal, sane people who were lying. And they were influenced to lie by a demon. But it didn't look obvious. And the woman who was freed from the spirit of disability, that wasn't obviously demonic. That was very subtle. The only way you would know that it was a demon is if the Holy Spirit gave you discernment for it. The reason Christians don't see demons is because they're looking for the wrong thing. They're looking for Hollywood's version of demonization. Moreover, I mean, I, I believe Christians can have demons because of human experience. I've been in meetings where I've seen demons cast out of Christians who I knew personally very well, and I know for certain that they were Christians at the time the demons were cast out of them. And this isn't some unusual thing. Several Christians have experienced this. There's books about it. There's documented testimony. But anyways, I wanted to give... Um, some time for testimony. So there's two testimonies we're going to hear today because I like to have some diversity of testimony and not just be the only one speaking all the time. So Catherine is going to share her personal experience and then John Gray. Well, I became a Christian at the age of 15, <clears throat> and when I came to Christ, I had a lot of demons. I was really oppressed by fear and anxiety and um, just a whole host of other, today a lot of people would say psychiatric stuff, um, but coming to Christ, I knew that these, th these things were there in my life, how they got there you know, I wasn't too concerned with how they got there. I had some ideas about how they got there. But it was more of, can I get free of this by coming to Christ? So um, <clears throat> the person who shared the gospel with me encouraged me, led me in a simple prayer of salvation, which I prayed, and immediately I felt a tremendous change um, Spiritually speaking, uh, I felt this darkness lift, kind of break off of me. However, there were other things in my life, again, a darkness, that were still there, even after uh, coming to Christ. The man who shared with me said, okay, now that you've come to Christ, what you need to do is read your Bible, fellowship with a group of good Christians, um, and pursue this Christian life. And of course, what does that mean? Well, it meant a lot of things, as, as I would gradually find out. But I started doing the things he told me to do immediately. I started fellowshipping with Christians. Um, 
I would go to prayer meetings three and four nights a week, church on Sundays, although the group of Christians I was with, it was not a formal church at the time, uh, but I was in a lot of worship meetings, singing songs of praise to the Lord, and the other thing he encouraged me to do was start reading my Bible. So I started with the Gospels, and I started reading my Bible, and I tried to read every day, and I read quite a bit of the Bible. Now, when I came to Christ, one specific thing that had really had impacted my life up to that point was, and, and these things are very subjective. It's hard to describe. I'll do the best I can. It was as if there was some black cloud hanging over me all the time. At sometimes the oppression was worse than others, um, but along with the oppression, there was depression and a tremendous sense of fear and anxiety. Um, I'd had this most of my life. Now, as, as a young Christian, I was reading the Bible on a regular basis. And after about a year of becoming a Christian, I was in a prayer meeting. And all of a sudden, I realized this horrible black thing that had been weighing down on me and causing me to be terribly afraid, anxious, and fearful, and depressed, it was gone. Now, I believe that was a true deliverance, and it never came back, I believe that was a true deliverance of some type of demonic oppression uh, that was pretty much indwelling me because I, I'd had it as far as I could remember all my life up to that point. Later, I came to, uh, after talking it over with Greg, what we came to conclude was that by pursuing Christ, by reading the scriptures, by having my mind washed by the washing of the word, this demonic presence could no longer live within me. It had to go. You know, just as in the Gospels, Jesus talks about, you know, the house that is put in order, swept and made neat, the demon is cast out, now it has to be filled by something, and I was filling my house, my being, with the Word of God and the Holy Spirit. Later on, I would have more experiences with deliverance where I believed I had certain specific demonic uh, oppression in certain specific areas, and other people laid hands on me and cast out the demons. I experienced more deliverance from that. But I believe my first experience of deliverance was truly from the Holy Spirit himself, not mediated through a human being. So there's nothing wrong with people, certainly it's a good thing, when other Christians lay hands on a person and cast out demonic spirits that are causing them many problems. But you can also be simply set free from demonic bondage in your life by consistent daily walk with Christ. So there's many different ways to, to experience deliverance. And I later in my Christian walk, many years later, I had another similar experience where the Lord simply just kicked a bunch of stuff out of me. And <laughs> these things didn't have a name, but I was so thankful when he was done doing that. I, again, it was, it was a powerful experience of relief from these oppressive things that had been weighing me down. Sometimes it's not totally clear exactly what you're getting delivered of, but that's okay because the Lord himself knows what you need deliverance from.
Thank you, Catherine. Okay, my name is John Gray, and I'm here to testify that I have been oppressed by demons. Uh, the first instance of this that I remember uh, was when I was a teenager, probably junior, senior in high school. Um, my parents used to get this certain kind of uh, uh, department store uh, uh, clothing magazine in the mail, and, uh, and I was addicted to taking these magazines and going and, uh, you know, having lustful thoughts and uh, carefully reading every page of the magazine, right? Um, and, uh, of course, the Lord says, if you lust, you've already committed adultery in your heart, right? And that doesn't have to be with a person. That could be with a picture. So that was an addiction that, you know, and a habit of mine every day. Uh, when I had first come to Christ, uh, or I first came to Christ when I was, I think, let me say I came to Christ when I was, uh, I think, about eight years old, as best I could tell, hard to say. Uh, but I had a, a stronger experience of my heart being more fully converted to Christ. In high school, I was saved, and the Holy Spirit was powerfully drawing and filling me. And the main aspect of that was about a one-and-a-half-year-long struggle with um, this addiction I had, looking at these magazines, right? And I remember one day, I was... Uh, uh, I was sitting on my, uh, on my bedroom floor, and I knew there was a stack of department store catalogs, including this particular one that I had looked at before, uh, sitting on the desk behind me. And I, was, uh, I had like an old toy that I was putting together, uh, um, like an old Lego set I was assembling or something. And I remember it felt like my hand had no gravity to it, and I was using... It, it felt like I was using physical strength to keep my hand from rising up, and it, it was like a, an unseen counter-gravitational force was making my hand li try to lift up, and I felt myself wanting to just, like naturally, without any effort, I could have just let my hand lift up and stood up and gone over and gotten that magazine and opened it up, and it was such a obviously, it was as powerful as the force of gravity. And I was clearly a Christian and growing in sanctification in different ways. And after sensing this force as strong as gravity, at one point I just shouted. I mean, I, nobody was in the room with me. I was quiet. I, just, I was like resisting it. And then I yelled, no! And all of a sudden, my hand had no counter-gravitational force trying to lift it up and take me over to that stack of catalogs, and the addiction that day was broken. And, uh, um, Christians sin. Christians are not fully sanctified. Demons exist to sneakily keep you from being filled with the Holy Spirit, like me. Those who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God, are sons and daughters of God. And we know that we are more or less led by the Spirit of God on different days and in different hours. That's the Christian life. So I'd like to tell you about another time I was oppressed by uh, some demons. I'll tell you two, briefly. Um, I had a demon of unbelief and some kind of demon of like a critical spirit. And uh, Greg, Catherine, I don't remember if you or Deanna were there. 
John Weiss, and I think Jason Hale were there, and one or two others, you remember maybe. Um, and you guys just, we worshiped for a little while, and I sat there and I just, you know, confessed some sin, uh, renounced some, you know, sin, like normal routine daily Christian uh, confession of sin that you're supposed to be doing at home every morning uh, to start your Christian day, right? Um, that's how we start our day. And so we did that. It was like super normal Christian stuff, nothing like weird, nothing like the movies at all. And then you guys prayed for me. And I think somebody put a hand on my shoulder and so forth. On Vesh, you were there for, for one of these several prayer meetings, that were, of which there were three or four or five. Um, and I remember um, I just felt really peaceful and glad. It was like a wonderful worship service. And I didn't, I don't know, maybe I kind of sighed and felt like a little bit of just a deep breath come out of me or something. Nothing, nothing real fancy, radical, or... Or there was no like hypnosis or anything. But what I really noticed a change was the next day when I went to work. I was driving up James H. McGee Boulevard, and uh, I'll just be honest here. Okay, so up until that day, I'd never in my life looked at people and not normally had the thought, you're stupid, you're fat, you're ugly, right? And if you had known me, you would have known me as John Gray, the nice guy. If you know me now, you know me as John Gray, pretty nice guy, right? <laughs> but um, that was because of the Holy Spirit regularly helping me to suppress those thoughts that were daily. In fact, almost every time I saw anybody, I would have those thoughts. Almost every, like certainly every day, uh, every hour pretty much, I was always thinking really harsh, mean, critical thoughts about people, and it rarely came out. I don't think anybody ever heard me say, you're, you know, whatever. Hardly ever. Um, but I was always battling those thoughts. And I didn't even realize that wasn't normal. But as I was driving up James H. James H. McGee Boulevard, I saw somebody, and they were like walking with a limp or something, and another person who, you know, carried some extra weight, and another person who just, I don't know, dressed irregularly or whatever. And I remember thinking, there goes a person, and there goes a person, and there goes a person. And I didn't just think that person is a bad dresser, or that person doesn't take care of themselves, or that person's, you know, a bad person, you know, ugly or whatever. And it was such a, it was an amazing, it was a surprising thing that I didn't have thoughts that person's fat, ugly, or dumb. I'd never in my life had a day that I recalled where I, had driven down the road and not had those thoughts about people. It was that surprising. And that's what deliverance from demons does in the Christian life. I also had a spirit of unbelief. And I'll testify, uh, some people here probably do too. I'm not thinking of anybody at all in particular. Um, but you may. I, what that looked like, what that felt like is when in worship, when in prayer, when in quiet time, I was regularly and often having this, like, having this thought in the back of my mind suppressing belief in Christ, and I had to, like, fight to believe that God is real, that Jesus is alive today. I'd been a Christian for years, and it was normal for me to just have the hardest time worshiping or praying or having, like, any kind of evangelism because I was often thinking, like, that's not true, there's no God. That thought was often in my head. 
Has anybody here experienced anything like that? There are demons of pride. There are demons of unbelief. There are demons of fear. Uh, there are demons of worry. Uh, I don't need a demon to sin. I am not fully sanctified. I have the Holy Spirit living in me. My body is the temple of the Holy Spirit. And the reality of the Christian life is that my body is uh, a sanctified uh, a soul that is clothed with, fully clothed with the righteousness of Christ. Yet another part of me is that which the book of Romans we studied a couple years ago calls the flesh. The flesh, always, the flesh is at war with God and always wants to sin and be God itself. And so the flesh wants to rise up in you and temptation comes either from the flesh or from a demon. I remember one time last year, I'll close with this. Thank you, Josiah. Um, last year, one time, I was having these incredibly disturbing thoughts. They were like these weird temptations that I had never thought of nor wanted. And it, it was like this most awful, terrible thought. Like, you know, kind of thing somebody, like, like inmates would like ostracize the prisoner who was convicted for that. And I was having like those kinds of thoughts. And I went and I talked to Catherine in the front row and I was like, Catherine, I'm having some really terrible temptations. And all you said was, and I'm sure it was at the influence of the Holy Spirit because it was true. You said, well, you know, um, you, sometimes temptation comes from demons or something. And I was like, oh, that's not coming out of my character. That's not coming from... Christ, like, uh, even though I'm capable of all the possible sins in the world, as are you, uh, sometimes we're harassed, like the believers that were harassed and helpless, like sheep without a shepherd, right? Demons help people sin. They tempt people. And demons increase suffering in the Christian life. That is, they, uh, they, they torment people. They increase suffering. Think they tempt and they torment. They help people sin and they increase suffering in the Christian life. They tempt and torment. They help people sin and they increase suffering. But you can sin without a demon and you will suffer. Anybody who desires to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will suffer. Demons come out by repentance from sin and by prayer with fasting. And that is my testimony. Thank you. Thank you, John and Catherine. All right. Let's see, might have to split part of the sermon in half, but we have a bit more time. Um, let's see. So another question worth talking about is how do demons enter people? You know, that's something we have to learn about. Um, the Bible doesn't give much explicit teaching on how demons enter people or how a demon can enter a person. But I think there's a few things we can glean. Um, one thing that I'd think is a good probability of how a demon can enter a person is from not putting on the armor of God. Let's look at Ephesians 6, verse 11. 
Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. He says that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. What's the implication? That if you don't put on the whole armor of God, you won't be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. Putting on the armor of God is a choice. And it's not just some... Uh, abstract thing like righteousness, truth. We don't have time to look in detail at the armor of God for this sermon. But these are things we choose. We choose to put on truth. We choose to put on righteousness. We choose to put on the helmet of salvation. And if we don't choose to do that, you know, we might not be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. Uh, But some other things that have that I think you can kind of glean from human experience or that I've gotten from studying uh, books by various deliverance ministers that commonly open the door for demons, uh, willful participation in sin can open the door sometimes for demons to enter. Sometimes it might be generational. Uh, a big one is unforgiveness. Unforgiveness can really open the door for demons to enter a person. Like, God's commands are pretty clear. Christians are always to forgive everyone. And Jesus said that if, you know, if we don't forgive others, he mentions in the one parable of the servant uh, who owed like a million, hundreds of millions of dollars and got forgiven, but didn't forgive his other, his co-worker servant who owed him 50 bucks, he was given up to the tormentors. And there's a number of people who think that that means, you know, that's opening the door for demons because demons torment. I think that's a reasonable interpretation. Another thing that can open the door for demons is occult involvement. Occult involvement also can be more subtle than people think. Using Ouija boards is occult involvement. Reading horoscopes and believing that they tell the future is occult involvement. Yeah. Horoscopes are dangerous because divination is a sin. But if you would like uh, to learn more in detail about how demons enter people, there are some books at the bottom of the handout uh, in your bulletin that I would recommend reading. But let's talk about casting demons out. Because, you know, that's what we're building up to. That is what Christians are called to do. We have the authority to cast demons out. Let's look at some uh, scriptures that show that. Matthew 10, verses 5 through 8. If I can find it. These 12 Jesus sent out, instructing them, Go nowhere among the Gentiles and enter no town of the Samaritans, But go rather to the lost sheep of the house of Israel and proclaim as you go, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Heal the sick, raise the dead, cleanse lepers, cast out demons. You received without paying, give without pay. And someone may say, well, that was just the 12, but there's two reasons that's not a good reason uh, to deny the authority that God gives Christians to cast out demons. Uh, the first one is that we're going to see in the next passage we look at, he sent 72 out and gave them the same authority. And then the second one we'll get to later in the sermon during the communion meditation, the Great Commission. 
Uh, but let's look at Luke 10, verses 17 through 19. The 72 returned with joy, saying, Lord, even the demons are subject to us in your name. And he said to them, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. Behold, I have given you authority to tread on serpents and scorpions and over all the power of the enemy, and nothing shall hurt you. And then lastly, let's look at Mark 16, verses 17 through 18. And these signs will accompany those who believe. In my name, they will cast out demons. They will speak in new tongues. They will pick up serpents with their hands. And if they drink any deadly poison, it will not hurt them. They will lay their hands on the sick and they will recover. Jesus gives authority to all believers to cast out demons. But there's something I want to point out about that. That authority has to be used. Authority, a Christian having authority over demons is like a teacher having authority over children in a classroom. The teacher has to choose to act in authority. The teacher might forget that they have authority over the children, or they might even start to doubt for some reason that they have authority over the children. But that teacher still has authority over those children. It's objective. If they forget it or if they stop believing it, it's still true. But they still have to use it. If the teacher with authority over children in the classroom neglects to give commands or to use their authority, the classroom descends to chaos. And the kids do whatever they want. The teacher has to use their authority, and they have to speak with authority. The teacher shouldn't tell the kids, well, Jimmy, if you could pretty please not beat up the other kids, that would be quite nice. (laughs) That's not using authority. That's going to be totally ignored by the children. The teacher should speak with authority. Jimmy, you are going to stop that. You must listen. You will not talk back. And we as Christians, we have authority over demons, but we have to use it. I also want to talk briefly about, so, you know, authority and power always go together. Authority has to be backed by power or else authority is going to be ignored. And I think it helps us uh, to act with authority to understand why the authority will be heeded. It's not our authority, it's Jesus' authority that he delegates to us. And because of that, it's not our power that's going to back it. Otherwise, demons just wouldn't listen. It's Jesus' power that backs Jesus' authority. You know, um, well, which... So demons are afraid of God as they should be. Let's look at James 2, verse 19. You say you have faith, for you believe there is one God. Good for you. Even the demons believe this, and they tremble in terror. Sometimes demons tempt us to be afraid of them. And if if we let them succeed in that, that can be kind of effective for them. But we need to remember that they tremble in fear when they think about the power of the living God. And God's power backs God's authority. When we come against demons, we come by the authority of God, and he will enforce the commands that uh, his delegates give.
we should expect that demons will be afraid of God's power. And we act in authority with confidence in God's authority and confidence that he will back it up. Uh, But anyways, part of this on spiritual warfare we're going to continue next week uh, because it is getting a bit late. So in conclusion... um, Well, first off, I want us all to remember the Bible does not teach that a Christian cannot be indwelt by a demon, and that is a dangerous assumption to make. That is a risky assumption to make. Secondly, all Christians have authority to cast out demons, and we should seek to make good use of that authority. So this was not nearly deep enough of a treatment on deliverance, but... For the scope of this series, it's what we'll do for this series, and hopefully sometime soon I'll be able to do a series on deliverance. But meanwhile, there are certain books that I would recommend if you want to learn more about deliverance. Uh, Pigs in the Parlor is a great book. It's my favorite of these three books. There's also They Shall Expel Demons and Deliverance from Evil Spirits. Uh, Each of these books is available in the church library, and I would recommend reading them if you want to learn more about uh, deliverance from demons. But let's get to our communion meditation. Uh, Today's communion meditation is called uh, The Authority of Jesus' Name. Let's read Matthew 28, verses 18 through 20. And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. So there's two things I want to point out about this, about the Great Commission as it's related to deliverance. Uh, First off, so Jesus gave the Great Commission to the Twelve, right? But because he said to teach all things that he commanded, by extension, the Great Commission applies to all Christians. But Jesus commanded the disciples to cast out demons, and he never retracted that command. So by extension, the authority and the command to cast out demons extends to all Christians, just as the Great Commission does. The second thing I want to point out about the Great Commission is all authority in heaven and on earth is given to Jesus. When we come against demons, we are coming in the name of Jesus to whom all authority in heaven and on earth have been given. We don't come in our own authority, we come in his authority. And even though demons might not have respect for us as persons, before Jesus they will bow the knee. Even though they will do so bitterly and begrudgingly, because they know that Jesus has all power and all authority, and they will tremble in fear of him. Let's come to the table.